Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. Today, we're bringing you the third episode in our series, America's Public Health Experiment. The focus of this week's episode are automatic stabilizers. To help us better understand what automatic stabilizers are and how they could help during a crisis that affects the economy like a global pandemic, we turn to Weeds co-host Jerusalem Dempsis. Everyone, it's Jerusalem. So today I sat down with Arnab Dada. He is the senior counsel at Employ America, which is a think tank slash policy advocacy group here in DC working on macroeconomic policy. And he previously also worked on the Hill for Senator Michael Bennett, working on housing policy stuff. So we obviously have a lot to talk about with that. But today we're focused on the federal government's fiscal response to the global pandemic in the United States. Arnab, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited about this. Yeah, me too. So for all intents and purposes, we've, you know, we've read on the federal government a lot during this series with their public health response, but the federal government's fiscal response has been pretty strong. We passed trillions of economic relief, both under President Donald Trump and under President Joe Biden, including direct checks to individuals like you and me, extended unemployment benefits to folks who lost their jobs, rent relief, direct aid to state and local governments. The list really can go on. But one thing that people have been advocating for, including Arnab, is this idea called automatic stabilizers. And the formal definition of automatic stabilizers is that they are automatic increases in revenues and decreases in outlays in the federal budget that occur when the economy strengthens and the opposite changes that occur when the economy weakens. But, you know, in more general terminology, basically you pick an economic indicator. Let's say it's the unemployment rate. And if the unemployment rate goes up, let's say to like 6% or whatever number we've picked is like really bad then automatically we would have some sort of fiscal response immediately trigger, whether it's direct checks being sent to people's bank accounts or it is further investments in the unemployment insurance. So everyone gets extended unemployment insurance at this time. Whatever it is that the government picks is the appropriate response to that specific pain that the economy is feeling. And the goal would be for these automatic stabilizers to exist so that regardless of what type of economic emergency is happening, there is a sort of base floor that will always occur um, in response. So we're going to get into the weeds of all of that. But before we do, I really want to set the stage for us a bit because a lot has changed in America's fiscal response to macroeconomic crises. Let's just compare it to the Great Recession. What did we see differently from the federal government in terms of their macroeconomic response, their fiscal response with COVID relative to the Great Recession? What were the big lessons learned that you think were implemented this time around that weren't in 2009 and 2010? So I think in terms of differentiating between this recession and the last one, I think it's really, really important for us to realize that we did a huge, huge thing here. The pandemic response that we had with the CARES Act with the extension of a number of provisions of that throughout the year, and then with the American Rescue Plan, 
had really, really big impacts and things that we have not seen in several of the past recessions. So I would, I would kind of start with the CARES Act, which had a number of really, really great programs. I would highlight the unemployment insurance programs that were part of it, where $600 was added to every check. It expanded eligibility to include gig workers. There was also increases in SNAP payments for food stamps. There were direct checks that were sent out. We hadn't tried this level of stabilizing demand and and replacing income for folks in a long time. And the end result of it was that even though unemployment rose above 20% to Great Depression levels, we were able to cap a rise in poverty. You know, I, I know this is the weeds, and so we like to be technical here, but just to be emotional for a minute, I remember in the summer of 2020, I think it was, getting a notification on my phone about, it was a Jason DePaul story at the New York Times, making that exact point that we had capped a rise in poverty because of this huge federal expansion and uh, mm-hmm. of these programs. And that is really unheard of in human history. And I think we need to give a lot of credit to the legislators who were involved with that, Senators Wyden, Senators Bennett, also Secretary Mnuchin. That was a big thing. Um, so I think my big lesson there is that this works, that we can do a really incredible thing. And just to finish it up, I think the American Rescue Plan is another good example of this. I think if you looked at all external independent reports that predicted where unemployment would be to date at this point right now, it would not be at, I think, around 4.2%, which is where it is. Mm -hmm. And that recovery, how fast that's happened, the job gains that we've had are really, really incredible. And so I think that's really what we should point to as a lesson that these are really big things and we can do them if we expend the effort. Yeah. I mean, I I saw a recent New York Times article kind of following up on that, that essentially the huge increase in government aid cuts poverty in nearly in half from pre-pandemic levels. And and it made the Americans, the share of Americans in poverty at the lowest level on record, which is, you know, pretty astonishing. This is not just in response to the poverty increase that could have happened during the pandemic, but but from pre-pandemic levels, um, which just indicates how much this fiscal response uh, mattered. I mean, we basically had all told probably more than five trillion in spending from the federal government in um, response to the COVID recession. But just taking us back a little bit too, kind of broadly speaking, it seems like one of the big takeaways that we had from the Great Recession recovery, especially because it just took so long. I mean, it took nine years, essentially, um, for us to get to the point where the unemployment rate fell to the CBO's estimate of the natural rate of unemployment. Like That's a really, really long time. In the previous few recessions, it took about five to six years for the unemployment rate to fall to that estimate. And I think one of the big things that I saw happening among sort of econ Twitter and like economic discourse folks in general was just that people started believing and enacting in their own policy analysis this sentiment that the government can do a lot to prevent recessions and that recessions in some level are a policy choice. Whereas there are, of course, you know, uh, exogenous economic shocks, like whether it's COVID-19 or like, you know, an oil shock or something like that that can happen that can cause that immediate economic pain. The federal government can do quite a bit to ensure that that pain goes away very quickly for workers. Have you kind of observed this as well, both in Congress and in your own work at Employ America? 
it's amazing how much the discourse has changed and it, and is still evolving. I think, I mean, obviously there's a big debate happening right now about the inflation that we're experiencing and, and what are the causal factors there. I tend to think that we erred on the side of giving more, which is better. And that some of the, the pain that we are seeing now, while difficult, I don't, I don't want to underrate it. Mm-hmm. Um, trading job loss is is not the right trade-off either, and I wouldn't put it there. I think you're seeing a lot of conventional wisdom um, from the past, particularly out of the Great Recession, that's being debunked in real time. I think a lot of us who remember the debates about the skills gap at that time or whether manufacturing could ever come back to America, manufacturing job loss is a great example, tend to be concentrated around recessions. Um, I think one thing that's amazing to see now is this investment boom that we're mm-hmm. seeing. A lot of capital expenditure, a lot of capital investment. I think if you if you think back to the Great Recession, if I told you that a sawmill was closing, I think you could find any number of economic commentators who would say, well, we're not going to do lumber production in America. Like That's never coming back. Mm-hmm. But I remember a couple of months ago, there were stories about sawmills being brought back online. Mm-hmm. And now factories are opening and you're seeing all these amazing things happen that really chip at that conventional wisdom. And I think, again, it, it goes back to the point that this is really a policy choice. We can mm-hmm. be a lot better and we can really minimize the pain that we see and we can stabilize demand in a way where some of the investment continues, some of this type of capital and expenditure and, and things that we see. So I think mm-hmm. that's like a really positive development. And it is something that legislators and policymakers are talking about more. And it feels like automatic stabilizers is sort of kind of the natural extension of a lot of this um, new thinking. So, you know, how did this sort of kind of enter into the debate? I remember um, Michael Bennett having a proposal. Was that sort of the beginning of this entering the broader federal conversation around how to respond to these kinds of crises? I think Sarah Bennett, I mean, he's my old boss and and I love him. So I, I would love to give him a lot of credit. I do think, you know, this is an idea that's been kicking around for, for some time. I think in terms of organizations, I think places like the Center for American Progress, CBPP, um, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, you know, this is something that had been on the think tank circuit for quite some time. But in terms of legislative proposals, I think Senator Bennett's, um, you know, kind of comprehensive program of this with unemployment insurance and, and reforming the extended benefits program, particularly but then also a SNAP automatic stabilizer that he had released at the beginning of the pandemic. He certainly deserves a lot of credit. And I think those are the, the first legislative proposals to kind of really think about this at that deep a level, for sure. It feels like this is a pretty big topic. Like It feels like automatic stabilizers, there's, there's so many different ways you can design them. There's so many different ways to think about them. Before we jump into the different types of policy design that can go into this, can you just talk about the types of automatic stabilizers that already exist? My understanding is like, there's obviously unemployment insurance, but can you just walk us through ones that exist right now and, and, and how they help uh, stabilize the economy during crises? I think I would delineate it here a bit between what I would call maybe natural automatic stabilizers. And these are things like the regular unemployment insurance, the food stamps program, SNAP, TANF, which is the welfare program, and the general tax system that we have. These are natural in the sense that they don't change whether or not we're in a recession. They just kind of exist. So the way they work to automatically stabilize the economy is that when you have a big 
job loss or big income loss in the aggregate, more people qualify for these benefits. And so more people are getting them. And that's kind of how, how it works. But aside from that, you have automatic stabilizer programs that are specific injections or policy changes that happen at the onset of recessions. And the big one that I would point to is the extended benefits program, which is part of the federal unemployment insurance program. This is, it's a state federal partnership. It's 50% financed by the states and 50% by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is when the unemployment reaches a certain level, you get an additional number of weeks for people who are on unemployment insurance. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the big existing one that I would say is that kind of program. One thing I would just add there too is that a lot of my focus and our focus um, at Employ America has been on that latter part, that latter kind of automatic stabilizer program. And the reason for that is that our natural ones don't work particularly well. Unemployment insurance replaces a pretty small amount of lost wages, on average about 40 to 50%. SNAP is a great program, but it also has a lot of onerous requirements, and so it's hard to access. That's true of a lot of welfare programs here. And so I think we need to strengthen both. We need to make our permanent system here a bit better functioning. But then also we need to plus up support when recessions hit that are tied to some kind of economic indicator so that they start early and stay on as long as we need. And this was an idea that was included in uh, discussions around the formation of the Build Back Better bill. I mean, Senator Ron Wyden, I think, led around 10 Democratic senators and other members in the House of Representatives to try to include automatic stabilizers in Build Back Better. But that effort failed. Can you, can you describe what their plan was and, and what happened to it? So basically, the, the way this would have worked is they would have tied direct payments and the unemployment insurance extensions that were passed at the at the tail end of 2020, they would have tied that to an economic indicator, basically the unemployment rate. Um, there were a couple of different proposals around that had different rates, but I think generally they fell between 5.5 and 6.5% unemployment rate. So the benefits would keep going out until you reach that level of unemployment. And the benefit, obviously, of this is that you're not setting an arbitrary date and you don't have to rely on Congress to pass another extension. So that's really how it would work um, in in simple terms. And uh, and so so what happened? It's really frustrating. I mean, the reality is, is that during recessions, when unemployment is high, these policies score really high. Um, The CBO score for this would have been very high. They cost a lot of money. Now, (laughs) I think it's really important to talk about how absurd that is because, of course, they cost a lot of money. The economy is bad, right? So if you you think about kind of how in in a non-recession time, how the CBO might score this, They would maybe use dynamic scoring and they would place a probability on recession and and then apply that probability to the total cost. But if they have a a certain estimate of what's going to happen to the unemployment rate, where it's going to be over the next 10 years, and they tend to err on the side of a longer recovery, I would say, or they did in this case, it just cost a lot of money. So we had a fixed amount and, and they tend to cost. That's also the reason why the benefits weren't in the HEROES Act, um, which I don't know if you remember that, but that was kind of the the bill that the House was pushing for, particularly after CARES had passed. 
And there was a lot of discussion about tying the unemployment benefits to an external economic trigger. I helped um, a couple of legislators work on something called the Worker Relief and Security Act that would have tied it to tears, basically. But that also didn't make it in there. And the big reason was it just would have cost a lot of money. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to dive even more into the weeds on all the ways you can design automatic stabilizers. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. And we're back. Okay, so now let's figure this out. So there are a lot of different ways that you can design these programs. Can you just talk us through what you think kind of the best few options are and how you would rank them uh, against one another? I mean, both in terms of what types of economic triggers should be used to determine whether or not stabilizers go into effect, what types of fiscal spending you think are the most optimal to use? Should it just be direct checks? Should it be unemployment insurance or investments in different types of social insurance programs? Like, What's the best way to design this in, in your world? If it's all right, I think I'd like to step back there and talk about, I think, a couple of the lessons that we've learned from this pandemic response as well. These are just general guiding principles. I'll get into some of the weeds. Sorry, I had to do that Um, uh, in a minute. But um, I think two big things I would say. The first is our policy choices are largely dictated by our lack of ability to administer things well. That ends up in imperfect design. And then even when we've made those imperfect design choices, we still can't really do things effectively. So just to give a quick discussion about this, unemployment insurance is a great example from the CARES Act. The reason why the $600 check was designed and structured the way it was is 
because it captured a certain percentage of the gap between lost wages and what the UI system traditionally replaces. And so $600 in Massachusetts, like a higher income country, about 100% of the average wage was replaced. Um, but in lower income states, you saw 160% of wages replaced with that $600 top off. Now, I'm okay with that. Count me in the camp that thinks that that's a worthwhile trade off. But we had to do it that way because we didn't have a system where states could replace a certain percentage of wages, of lost wages. I'll never forget when New Jersey was frantically looking around for people who could code in COBOL, which is like 60-year-old programming language, because they couldn't make these changes. And then furthermore, after that, it still took months for some people to get benefits. And we think about who lost their jobs. These are not people with a ton of disposable income. I mean, a lot of Americans don't have a lot of disposable income. Surely not enough to tide them over for four months while they're waiting on unemployment benefits. So that really um, had a huge impact on our ability to respond here. Um, so I think that administrative capacity is something that we really need to take into consideration. And it, it guides where I would put that money. The second thing I would say that guides part of that decision-making, I'm, tr I'm trying to think about how to say this carefully, but how do you prevent nefarious actors from trying to sabotage the policy goals? This is something we see particularly with programs that are run through states where you might have governors who want to try to sabotage these programs. I'll just talk about like three quick examples here. Um, one is from CARES. Care, one big piece of CARES that helped a lot were these lending facilities that were created at the Federal Reserve. So even though the Federal Reserve was implementing them, they had kind of this interesting structure where the money was appropriated to Treasury's Exchange Stabilization Fund, but then given to the Federal Reserve to implement. So that discretion, that authority was in the Secretary of Treasury's hands. And early in the pandemic, that was fine because everyone was supportive of putting that money out there. But for some reason in November 2020, I don't know what <laughs> happened, um, Secretary Mnuchin decided to shut these down, even though you know he claimed he had a legal obligation to. There was no such legal obligation. It was a totally bogus justification, but he was still vested with that authority and that discretion. And so it became really hard to push back on that, even though he was using this bogus argument. I think we need to think about that legal authority and some of those institutional frictions, like between the Fed and Treasury, a bit more carefully next time. And then two other quick ones. We saw this after we passed the extension of unemployment benefits, that a lot of GOP governors shut them down early under the spurious argument that they were keeping people from taking jobs. Now, we've seen that that's at best a pretty small impact on job vacancies. And you really don't want to vest that if you, if you don't have to. You'd rather these GOP governors not have the ability to just shut down these great programs. And then finally, one last piece there. In the American Rescue Plan, um, there was a provision to help states fill fiscal shortfalls. And one of the conditions of those was that the receiving state could not lower its taxes in the two years following receipt of that money. And from a policy perspective, that makes a lot of sense. You don't want states to get a bunch of money and then just go and cut taxes for corporations or whatever it is. Um, presumably, if they can cut taxes, they can fill the shortfalls themselves or don't have a shortfall. But I think we need to assume that 
certain governors are going to challenge provisions like that, which they did in court. And we don't have very friendly courts uh, at the moment if you're someone who leans left. And so, you know, these are difficult trade-offs. I don't want to say that they're easy, but there's something that I think we need to be thinking about a little bit more carefully, where we're vesting that authority and that discretion. So those are some big lessons. Um, and, and now I can kind of tell you how that would guide how I would design these. I think the first thing is talking about what programs we're picking here. I think direct checks, SNAP, unemployment insurance through extended benefits, um, and state and local aid are probably four really, really good things to focus on. Part of the reason is we saw this with direct checks. Um, it's pretty easy to implement for Treasury now, so they can just send checks easily to people, direct deposit for a lot of people now. With SNAP, it's the same thing. It's relatively easy to just add some money to, to the card that people use uh, for their benefits. So those are the programs I would focus on. The simplicity of the program is is really, really important here, both in simpleness for people to be able to access it, like they know how to get it, they know that it's available, it's easier for them to understand, um, and also simplicity for the government to be able to get it out quickly. It doesn't require a bunch of work to set up that kind of a system um, in the middle of a crisis. I guess one of the um, big problems that we've seen over the pandemic is just that the inability for us to reach some of the um, worst off individuals in society. And it feels like setting up an, an automatic stabilizer system that's consistent across different crises would make it easier to reach these people. Um, do you feel like that's right? Or do you think there's something else that needs to be done in order to make sure you're not missing the very bottom um, earners in society? I, <laughs> a bit of a joke here, but I, I'm a big Kevin Costner fan. And so, you know, where he said in Field of Dreams, if you if you if we build it, they will come. I think if you build these programs, you can you can over time have people really come to them. And it's not going to be perfect. I think we're seeing this with the child tax credit. It's gotten a lot better. I'm really, really excited about the child tax credit as just another vessel for us to reach some of the hardest to reach in society and also bringing them into the tax system. But it is difficult. You need to build these over time. I think that's one of the benefits of having these permanent programs is that if we build a, a really great set of permanent automatic stabilizers, we can learn, we can tinker with them, we can refine them over time, but they're always there and we know it. It doesn't mean that Congress won't act in the future. There's always going to be idiosyncratic issues that we need to deal with in a given recession in in the global in the global financial crisis housing probably would have been that you know you and i both love housing i got my start working on housing policy but i don't know if i would design an automatic stabilizer around it but in that past recession you could have imagined congress having something like this in place where unemployment insurance and direct checks were going out to ease a lot of the pain and then it designed something a bit more targeted at the problem, particularly that we were seeing in the housing sector there. It's funny. I was going to say that it felt like rent relief actually is a particularly good candidate for automatic stabilizers, but it seems like you disagree. So I'd love to love to dive in on that. It, from my end, it seems like, I mean, what we've seen in general is that renters are lower income on average. Being evicted is, is actually quite costly, not just for you as an individual, but for society as a whole. If it means that like children can't attend school regularly, or if there is any kind of pandemic going on that obviously increases the spread. But even outside of the idiosyncrasies of, of COVID itself, like eviction is, is really 
really costly for victims of domestic violence, for community cohesion. People can't access basic needs or even like get to a better place economically if they don't have the very foundation of, of, a, of a roof over their heads or shelter. And so to me, it seems like, you know, uh, rent relief is actually a really, really good tool to be using in general. But it seems like you think that you would deprioritize that over direct checks or SNAP or something like that. I totally agree with you on every one of those points. I think evictions are one of the most harmful things that we have in society. And they're so bad during recessions, obviously, but they're generally really bad. I think that if we had a really strong set of stabilizers in terms of direct checks, you know, on unemployment insurance, that might help with a lot of the eviction waves that we see in recessions. And I, I think my only concern with housing support or rental support is that we don't have great mechanisms for getting that support out the door. I think you see this with the, with the rental relief now where it's, it's taken so long, even though, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of reasons why it's taken so long, obviously, and that, and that money goes directly to landlords, but it is a problem that we can't really just easily build that up through existing programs. A lot of states and a lot of local governments have emergency rental access programs. I think New York City is probably the biggest in the country where, you know, if you're at risk of eviction and, and there's some issue um, that turned up, you had lower wages or, or your car broke down, whatever it is, you can go and access that money. But they're not as wide as we would like, certainly in a re recession. And so I think you might run into a lot of the same implementation problems. And then you know, the other option is obviously the housing choice voucher program, but that's already, you know, only one in four people are getting vouchers anyways. So I think designing a trigger around something where already not enough people are getting it would be a little strange because then when you turn it off, does it mean that those people who qualify end up not? So I just, I think there are like a lot of problems with how we administer housing aid, but I, and I think we can fix most of those through very generous unemployment and direct checks and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's something we saw even without rent relief. People obviously were using their um, unemployment insurance and the direct checks that they got on um, rent, which meant rent payments stayed pretty pretty high during even the worst parts of the crisis uh, last year. So one of the things, though, that I want to dig in on is like what types of triggers are the best or what types of economic indicators are the best to, to actually trigger these types of things? It seems like unemployment insurance is one that people throw out a lot. But can you walk us through like which ones, uh, you know, the relative benefits of you know using GDP growth or or something else entirely is there is there a reason why we fixate on the unemployment rate? I would say generally, I would love to see a robust suite of triggers that could incorporate a lot of different situations. I think if we're talking about unemployment rates, there are a lot of different ways to measure unemployment itself. There's you know the normal kind of unemployment rate that we talk about a lot in the discourse. There's the insured unemployment rate, which is part of the extended, it's one of the triggers for the extended benefits program. There's the employment to population ratio. All of these measure different things, and they tend to work a bit differently. Some work better than others, depending on the recession. So for a long time, the conventional wisdom was that the insured unemployment rate was not very good, lagged behind the other ones in terms of how responsive it was. But this time around, it was the best indicator that we have. It was the one that responded the fastest. And so even within the unemployment rate, there are trade-offs that we would make. And I think it would be best to have a robust suite of triggers that captured a lot of these different things so that 
the next time we have a idiosyncratic recession for whatever reason it is, whether it's like an oil shock or some other thing, we have a bunch of different triggers that can respond to that. I think we want to make sure that whatever triggers we are picking are responsive and regularly collected that don't have a lot of seasonal adjustment, let's say I would call it. So, you know, the one that we used for most of our proposals is the SOM trigger um, that was created by my friend Claudia SOM. This essentially would, if within a 12-month period, the unemployment rate, and she used the one that's not seasonally adjusted, if it goes up by 0.5% above the low in the 12-month period, it triggers on. So let's just take January to January. If in January, the unemployment rate is 4%, and then in September, if it's, um, and that's kind of the, the lowest period in that 12-month period, if it goes up to 4.5, it triggers on and you have the benefits. That's worked pretty well. Um, it's better than a lot of the things that we um, use. If you look at GDP growth, I'd have to go back at the, the data here and see how often it's collected. But one thing I know, for example, is like the definition that the National Bureau for Economic Research uses for recessions is GDP based. And it takes them a year after the recession has started or more. Yeah. to actually classify something as a recession. So that's like way too long of a leg. We already have too long of a leg because Congress isn't fast enough to respond to these things. I don't think we need a metric also that is so quick to leg. So I think that's one thing about unemployment data is it is pretty good, at least at the fact that it comes out every month and, and we can track it pretty easily. And I mean, speaking of um, difficulty measuring things, one of the proposals that I believe Employ America put out was this idea of, um, you know, using automatic stabilizers and and the benefit would be a block grants aid to states. But w- one of the things I, I find difficult about this is like, I remember, you know, in 2020, there was just so much discussion about how similarly to the Great Recession, states were going to be experiencing these massive shortfalls that like they were going to have to cut higher education budgets again, to be really big problems for teachers, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, by the end, of the year, uh, it became clear that a lot of states actually had budget surpluses. And there are a bunch of reasons for that um, that we don't have to get into. But are, are you concerned about set up something like that where it feels like it may not actually immediately get to the people in need in the way that, you know, something like direct checks would? The, the caveat I would have there and, and the reason why I would include a state and local aid stabilizer is that the nature, for one thing, we have, you know, 50 50 different states and all these different jurisdictions that budget on very, very different timelines. And the decisions that they make, for one thing, they have to project forward and sometimes have big cuts because of certain expectations about their own source revenue um, that can lead to a lot of layoffs. So if we can stabilize that and provide some certainty, that's really good. I think that there's a design way out of this. You know, Alex's proposal that you mentioned was modeled off the Office of Macroeconomic Stabilization that was set up at Treasury in the late 70s to the 80s. Um, this is one of those weird things that Nixon did that was you know, kind of progressive, I guess. But um, I think that you can design a way to do this, first of all, where you have, let's call them revisions, or where you kind of recertify a need every quarter. So we, we've been working on a proposal like this with, with um, Senator Bennett's office that we haven't had a chance really, partly because we're trying to figure out some of these different questions. But I think 
if you, let's say if early in a recession, we know that a recession is unlikely to just last three months, right? It's, it's going to be some period of time and the recovery is going to take some period of time. But let's say early on in the recession, if the first three months you're getting some estimate of, uh, of replacement of your own source revenue based on what we can estimate from the unemployment rate. So that's kind of how we did it. We took an unemployment rate uh, I should give a shout out to great Bennett fellows, Charaglala and Lydia Cox. They came up with this like pretty sophisticated formula that tracks the unemployment rate and aligns it to the loss of revenue. And so if you can get a decent estimate and then basically recertify that amount and, and have it adapt a bit over the course of this recession every three months, I think you could correct for that problem of like giving too much money to states, which I think is okay. If you err on the side of giving them a lot of money up front so that they can not have to lay off a lot of people, that's a great thing. And then if we find out that their revenues are better than we expected, it means that maybe the next quarter they're not getting it or, or something like that. Okay. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, but I'm going to take another quick break and we'll be right back with you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we're back. So, you know, we've, we've gotten into the weeds a little bit about the policy design here, but one of the th problems that I've been thinking about with automatic stabilizers is just how different every part of the country can be in its response or in its, uh, its effectiveness to economic recessions. Um, there can even be obviously localized economic recessions, and you can have one region of the country actually doing extremely well and having, you know, ex is, is in a, in a period of expansion while other regions are in, in, in depression. And um, frequent listeners of the weeds will know that the reduction in interstate mobility caused by things like zoning regulations and occupational licensing and things like that have made it more difficult for us to have a single, uh, 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 have an easy fiscal and monetary response that would allow for people to have free movement between places that are experiencing expansion, places that are experiencing um, depression. But it feels like with automatic stabilizers, like how do you ensure that A, you're able to target people in places that are experiencing depression if most of the country is doing fine? Or, you know, how do you make sure that the aid is actually stabilized um, on average appropriately instead of just, you know, a bunch of people who are in good places are getting money when they don't need it, um, which obviously has inflationary uh, problems associated with that. And then people who are in pain are, are not getting the adequate amount of money. So, I mean, how do you guys deal with that thorny issue? I think we have a decent model in the extended benefits program. Um, so I'll, I'll use that as kind of a setup of you want to have some national calibration, right? When we have a, a nationwide recession, like we saw recently where unemployment is going up everywhere and is pretty high on average nationally, you want to have that support to the economy. But you're right. I think you see this particularly at the tail end of recessions where certain states take a lot longer to recover um, than other ones. We, I mean, this was one of the guiding forces behind certain GOP governors um, pulling out unemployment benefits was that they said their unemployment rate was a lot lower than it was in, let's say, you know, Michigan or, or someplace like that. And so I think the, the way that I would design this is, say you have that national level, 
where you have a trigger on and you have a trigger off. But then within that, states can be triggered on dependent on their state unemployment rates, which you actually have in the extended benefits program. One of of the reasons why states are reluctant to use extended benefits is because they have to pay for 50% of it, which is not ideal when you're going through a recession. So like outside of the Great Recession recovery period, at no time did more than 11 states opt into the optional triggers there. So if we made that federally financed, for one thing, states would have more of an incentive to opt into it. And then if you tied it to their state unemployment rates, you could have a situation where, let's say if 5.5% was our trigger for unemployment rate. If it goes up above 5.5%, it's on. If it goes below, it's off. But if the Michigan unemployment rate at that time is still 8%, they could opt in using the state trigger, and then they would continue to have those benefits going on. And so you wouldn't have that regional disparity issue. You know, you can't perfect away these issues, but certainly you can smooth them out so that states that tend to have tougher labor markets following recessions can actually keep them on using their own state level data. And our state level data for unemployment is, is good enough that I think that that would be okay. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the economic benefits of automatic stabilizers, but it's also like, you know, it's responding to the political problem that occurs in crises. You know, part of this is is the is the partisanship that might arise, making it such that some state governors kind of reject federal aid, even if it is mostly paid for. Um, we saw this with f- extended unemployment insurance. But like one of the big things that automatic stabilizers tries to do is to make it such that when a crisis does hit, instead of there being big debate around the floor help, the, 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 you know, the very basic help that needs to be provided, that that's taken care of and that the federal government can be freed up to focus on the specifics of that crisis. You know, it feels like that's something that would make it more likely for people to be in favor of it. But, you know, at the same time, I could also see there being a case where, you know, people really want a lot of leverage and this reduces some of the leverage during negotiation. So, you know, how do you think about the likelihood of this passing given the political stakes here? Uh, I'm sorry to be blunt. Um, I've heard that uh, point from people, from legislators in Congress. Like, Mm -hmm. if you do this, you're reducing our leverage to, like, extract more in the future. And frankly, I think it's one of the dumbest arguments (laughs) I've ever heard. Um, I'm I'm just going to, like, cards on the table. Yeah, It is a really, really, really bad thing to... not, I'm not saying you're thinking this, obviously, but like no, 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 yeah. it's a really, really dumb argument. As you said, what we're talking about here just raises the floor. We have a really, really bad floor. We have like unemployment insurance is just not nearly generous enough to keep people on their feet, to keep families whole when they experience job loss. And like we should do everything we can to permanently raise that floor. There is always going to be something for Congress to do. But as we saw, just getting back to that leverage piece, and I think this is like really important to think about in terms of the partisan nature of our political cycle. If you think about like a long recession, like the Great Recession, the unemployment insurance benefits that passed as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, those benefits lapsed five times before they ultimately expired in 2014. And you can't, with a straight face, say that Democrats who wanted to extend those benefits 
extracted a lot of concessions in order to extend those benefits each time they lapsed. What they actually had to do was give up a lot of support. So what you tend to see is at the beginning when things are really bad, everyone is on board with getting money into the economy. But as soon as you start to get a whiff of recovery, that energy recedes and you end up having to give up a lot more concessions to keep them going. And what we know about Congress is they're really bad at picking arbitrary dates for these programs to expire. To the point of which, like, they set an expiry date for one of these programs, I think, on Labor Day, which is just bonkers when you think about it. Like, this is like not something that Congress does well. They have no idea of, I mean, none of us, we should have a lot more humility about when a recession is going to end, when the labor market is going to get a lot better. But they certainly don't have a good um, way of defining this and defining that date on which it expires. And so if every time you have to extend this, you have to give up more concessions in order to get this important aid out there, like that's just not a good status quo. That's not a good default. If we tied it to some economic indicator, for one thing, like, look, it, it might not be my perfect economic indicator where I would love to see us get to the absolute tightest of tight labor markets before we withhold this aid. But if we could get some political consensus around some indicator, at least we're setting a better floor. So I think that generally, like we should, it's it's just a lot better. And there's always going to be political jockeying uh, around recessions about what we're doing. And there's always going to be extension fights. But let's make sure that we're not pulling unemployment benefits from the economy in 2014 and then waiting until 2019 for the labor market to really recover. That's just not a good place for us to be in. I guess I just to push you a little bit on this on, you know, obviously there are limits to discretionary fiscal policy, especially in the middle of a crisis. But it does feel like in some ways that this could be a very blunt tool to respond to recession. So is the argument that you're making that automatic stabilizers are the ideal way to respond? Or are you saying that given the federal government has not shown itself um, capable of responding in a tailored and quick and forceful manner in response to recessions, um, we have to rely on automatic stabilizers? I think that automatic stabilizers are tailor-made to address certain challenges that we see happen every recession. Every recession we have, you see aggregate demand drop off a certain level because people have less income and are losing their jobs. So things like direct checks, SNAP, a generous unemployment insurance system would stabilize that. They would help us not have that huge drop off in aggregate demand. And accordingly, I think the impact of that would be less job loss um, and a shorter recession. I don't think that it's going to solve every problem, obviously, but there are a few consistent problems that tend to happen that these types of automatic stabilizers could go a long way in addressing. Uh, Things like food insecurity, helping people keep some of that lost wages. Now, an automatic stabilizer is not going to address some of the liquidity challenges that we see necessarily where businesses have trouble accessing credit. So that's why it's great that Congress passed in the CARES Act, the the provision I mentioned about the Fed facilities, which stabilized a lot of the liquidity crisis we were seeing. Just as as one example, um, there's a pretty direct line between the municipal lending facility that was created 
and the drop in municipal bond yields to their pre-pandemic level. So something like that, Congress did a great job on addressing an idiosyncratic problem. They also put a lot of money into PPE and funding. I think some of uh, the funding for Operation Warp Speed came out of the CARES Act. Like, they're really, really good in idiosyncratic things that they could put a lot of money into. The thing that they're just not good at doing is getting the timing right on some of these big aggregate problems that happen every recession. And that's what the automatic stabilizers would help solve. And I mean, you've been involved with the legislative process. Is this something that we could see happen in the future, you think, under Democratic or Republican administrations? Or is this something that you think that like states could start pursuing on their own some sort of kind of automatic stabilizers that they have at the state level that might be the way forward? Or, or what do you think is going to happen with this policy in the next um, you know, decade? I think it's tough for states to do it um, just because they have limited fiscal capacity as it is. So I, I, I mean, I would love to like, I'm sure that there are some states and well-governed states that are that are thinking about some of these things. In terms of the next decade, um, one thing that we tend to see is that the energy to do stuff like this only happens during recessions. Um, I was working on these automatic stabilizer proposals before COVID hit, and it wasn't easy, um, even though, you know, like one of the benefits is when we're in a recovery or if we're in a strong economy, it scores at quite a bit lower. So that's actually the best time to pass it because it scores lower and we have it in place for the next recession. Um, I think it's it's going to be really tough if we continue to be pretty constrained in what we can spend on these programs. But I also think there's a lot of consensus among economists and politicians, for that matter, and policymakers in doing some version of this. And so I don't want to, I don't want to oversell it and say that we're going to get a big bipartisan automatic stabilizers bill, but I'm, I tend to be an optimist. And I think that there is an imperfect maybe consensus around making this better the next time. I think one thing like I was pretty heartened by during COVID is that you did see a lot of policy experimentations. I was, I, I remember there was, um, a bill that uh, that uh, Senators Todd Young and Ben Sass put forward that would kind of force states to test the surge capacity of their unemployment insurance systems and make sure that like if you had a 20-fold increase in applications that you could actually deal with that. There's a lot of like interesting administrative things, I think, particularly that you could do. And then in terms of a permanent, you know, a better automatic stabilized proposal where we had extended benefits, the triggers reform to be a little bit better and have 100% federal financing. No, it's not going to be what exactly what I want, but I'm sure that I feel that there is a consensus where if we could get to some level of agreement in terms of the trade-off between how much we're compensating and not, that's better than nothing. Even if it kicks off at 6.5% instead of 4.5% or whatever it is. I, I, I try to be hopeful on that stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, interesting to think about what the lessons learned from this recession are going to be next time. I think economist um, Adam Ozimek had this line on Twitter that the lesson we learned from the last recession was you need we need to be spending a lot more money. And then from this recession is going to be we need to be a lot more targeted in how we're spending that money. It felt like in out, out of you know the, the common refrain we heard was just that it's better to do more than it is to do less. But it would have been best to do the, the amount that we need to do <laughs> and right, in, the way, exactly. in the way that we need to do it. 
And it feels like automatic stabilizers, you know, if, if there's a, another recession in the next, uh, you know, 10, 20 years or whatever, that it would be likely this is kind of like the policy idea that that could stick through to help, you know, smooth out some of the uncertainties of how much to be spending and what kinds of things to be spending it on instead of just taking a sledgehammer um, with the federal <laughs> fiscal response to try and, uh, well, sledgehammer is probably the best one, but maybe just like opening up the floodgates with all of the uh, economic stimulus that, you know, we could we could think about. Thank you so much, Arnab, for coming um, uh, and joining me to talk about automatic stabilizers. I feel like this was uh, one of more in-the-weeds episodes, so hopefully our listeners are excited about that. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for us today. Thanks to Employ America's Arnab Dada for joining us to talk about automatic stabilizers. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Jerusalem Demsis. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter to sign up for our newsletter. It can be in your inbox every week. And we will be back in your feeds next Tuesday with the final in our series on America's public health experiment, uh, where we'll be doing a panel with me, Dylan Matthews, and Dara Lind. We'll see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>